Welcome to the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Most people know Mike Daisy by now. He's uh, his show, The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs, supposedly based on reporting he did in China about Apple factories there and the horrors that uh, he reported made big news. He was on uh, This American Life with Ira Glass, and that brought him to a national and international audience that all unraveled when uh, a reporter for American Public Radio's Marketplace, Rob Schmitz, uh, took to the airwaves to describe the, the factual inaccuracies. This is a, an interesting set of events for us at Los Angeles Review of Books, where we've been following the uh, arguments about nonfiction and what it means to tell the truth or not to tell the truth in nonfictional genres. We're honored to have uh, Rob Schmitz in our studio, uh, interviewed by Anjali Shah. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. My name is Anjali Shaw. I'm an editor and journalist in Los Angeles and co-editor with the historian Jeffrey Wasserstrom of Chinese Characters, a book coming out this fall from UC Press. We're here today with Rob Schmitz, the Shanghai correspondent for American Public Media Marketplace radio show. You might remember Rob for breaking, quite literally, Mike Daisy's reporting on Foxconn, the factory uh, company in China that manufactures Apple products. Welcome, Rob. Thanks. Mike Daisy's story came on This American Life, and that's when you heard it for the first time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I heard it uh, about a week after it was broadcast. I was listening to it. Uh, in I was actually in the shower, and when I I poked my head out of the shower when I heard a couple of the things early on in, in the in the monologue, and and one of the things that he says is that he says he saw guards with guns, and and I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, I didn't, you know, I've never seen guards with guns outside of factories, and I was, and then he also mentioned at one point meeting workers whose hands were shaking uncontrollably because they'd been poisoned by N-hexane. And that was when I started to really think, okay, this, this doesn't check out because I had actually talked to these workers before. And um, these workers were nearly a thousand miles away um, up in Suzhou. And it was at a Wintech factory, which is another supplier of Apple, um, not Foxconn. And I thought it was sort of interesting that, you know, how, first of all, who, where did he meet these folks and how did they get down there? And, you know, what is he talking about? You know, I, then I started thinking, okay, this must be fiction, you know, because sometimes this American life has folks who kind of straddle that line. But then I heard uh, Ira comes on and says, you know, we thoroughly fact checked this. Ira's the. Ira Glass, I'm Ira sorry, Glass, the host of host This American of this Life. Movie. Yeah. And, and at one point he. He mentions, okay, we, we, we did, we, we fact checked this as best we could, and and then you you start hearing, you know, Nick Kristoff from the New York Times and and other folks weigh in on this, and I thought, this is a journalism program, and I thought, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. and so it sort of evolved from there. I, I you know did what what would come naturally to anybody who thinks that okay, I I wanted to check it with other people, and so I I called other journalists. And I emailed those folks um, who, who know China 
you know, just like I do. And I, I just wanted to, to check it just to make sure that I wasn't kind of hallucinating or something. And so, uh, you know, everyone agreed, uh, you know, after most people, first of all, didn't hear it. You know, I don't, I think I'm more attuned to public radio than most. And so I, I sent ever the link around and then other reporters also weighed in and said, who is this guy? This is a very interesting thing to me as an editor. There are so many writers and wonderful reporters working on China today. Uh, How do narratives that have so much um, to people in the know are so obviously problematic? How do they continue to kind of get through the to into mass media? Why is it that China is a place such that so many of these kind of tales of woe and tales of, um, not that there isn't hardship, of course there is in China, but so many stories get through without being 100% true. Well, this one was perfect. You know, if you think about it, this had all the elements of a narrative that many Americans wanted to believe, um, that Apple, you know, the the iconic brand, the most valuable company on the planet, everyone's got some sort of Apple product um, is, you know, contributing to children working at factories and people being poisoned and uh, all all these uh, terrible things. Um, It also plays into, I think, uh, a growing fear of China that it's because it was such a simple narrative. It's so black and white you know, I think I think it, it doesn't take much effort to believe uh, something like this in the United States. So when you you're based in Shanghai, mm-hmm. when you come back to Los Angeles or to the United States, are you surprised at the way people view China or the questions that they ask you? Not really. I think I think that this fear is 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 pretty common in our culture. Um, I think fear is is one of the the big elements of American culture in many ways, right? I mean, it's, it's, I think it's almost perpetuated by the media and, and, and by television and movies and everything else. I mean, we're, we're, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you look at other countries, we, we're very scared, uh, you know? And so I think that, you know, we need something in some ways, I almost feel like psychologically, we need something to fear. And China fits that, that, uh, that mold really well. It's very difficult, I think, to, try and understand the complexities of China. And I think a lot of the media doesn't make it easy to do that um, because a lot of stories we do see from China do fit that mold, the simple narrative. Um, but I think it's our jobs as journalists to offer, I think, a more in-depth picture of what's actually happening on the ground in China, which is much more complicated than 12-year-olds making iPhones. So when you think about reporting in China that you do or reporting that you respect and and in China, in English, let's say, let's restrict it to that. Otherwise, our conversation can go in any direction. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the pitfalls that you see? I mean, what kinds of reporters do a really good job and what kinds of reporters maybe get stuck in these narratives we want to believe you want me to name names? No, you know, the reporting that I respect, you know, isn't. You know, basically, I think the, the, the challenges of reporting in China is that you sort of have to um, tell the, the nuanced 
truth and, and, and you know, the, what you think might be happening as accurately as possible. But you also have to make it interesting, right? Um, and I think that what, what, I think what I see a lot is that it's either one or the other. <laughs> it's either accurate and, and a fuller picture, but it might not be that interesting, a story to read or to get through if you don't really understand China very well. Or it's it's something that has I think just it's it's maybe on the sensationalist side of things, but it's a great story. But it might not be that accurate. Um, the best stories are of course the ones in the middle, which which are well written, engaging, thought provoking, and at the same time uh, offer a more nuanced picture of China and give you a little more of just, you know, one, more than one facet of what, what is a very multifaceted country right now. Crafting a narrative mm -hmm. like that is not an easy process and it's not a particularly efficient process. It takes resources. It takes time. Do you think that there are enough journalists, American journalists, or even Western journalists working in China and, you know, who is still there at this point putting significant resources into reporting on the country? Are there enough? I don't think there's ever enough. You know, who's putting a lot of resources in China? The Wall Street Journal is. Uh, by far, they're above and beyond what anyone else is doing there. Um, they've got, you know, probably more than two dozen reporters there um, doing great work, uh, you know, very thought-provoking. And these are journalists who speak Chinese, who've been there for years, who know the country pretty well. I work for public radio and I am, I'm in charge of covering China for marketplace. Right. Uh, and so, uh, for me, this is an uphill battle all the way. Uh, it's just me, uh, for marketplace. And, uh, you know, I'm telling the, the, the story, uh, through the, the voices of, of, you know, normal people about, uh, China's economic transformation. And so, for me, it's it's um, you know it's 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 a tough thing to do, but it's it's very challenging and it's very interesting. It's so interesting to me as well that when I think about reporting on China, it's the Wall Street Journal, and for you at Marketplace, and even in Chinese media, business-oriented publications and news outlets seem to be doing a great job in a lot of ways. Do you think that your position with Marketplace? gives you some access or some immunity that perhaps other journalists don't get? Americans, if they have something interesting to say, they're going to say it in the first you know, few minutes with you. Um, Americans love to talk about themselves. And they'll tell you a great yarn about their family or about something amazing that happened in their past very quickly right, when you're interviewing them, usually. In China, this never happens, uh, in my experience. Uh, in China... Um, if you want to, you know, if you're, you have some questions about someone's past that might be, you know, you might uncover something interesting, that's not really going to happen within the first few minutes. And you're really going to have to actually um, ask a lot of procedural questions uh, and detail questions in order to get to that. And oftentimes it's, it's not a straight line. It's sort of all over the place. It's almost like a circle. And finally, you know, after like the 20th question, someone says something very interesting about something and then you can kind of follow that path. Now, money, talking about money with the Chinese is almost the great equalizer, because once you start talking about money, um, you know, a typical uh, Chinese person uh, will uh, talk about their salary 
uh, immediately. If not, you know, <laughs> before your question about how much they make, they might even tell you before that. And then they'll ask you how much you make and, and you'll, you'll go on. So in many ways, you know, my job is to talk about money, about how money uh, impacts uh, the country, but also how it impacts individuals. And so when I ask questions about money, that's something that's comfortable, I think, for most people in China. They can talk about that. And they have uh, they have experience talking about that. It's in their comfort zone, and it's a great vehicle to get to those areas that are a little less comfortable, but that might be more interesting to an American listener. You're coming on two years as the China correspondent for Marketplace. Right. Is are there any other kind of lessons about being a reporter in China that you've learned along the way, or anything that you've adjusted in your mind about what kinds of stories and that you want to pursue? I think what I've, what I've learned is that, you know, I, I said this earlier today in a talk that I gave, um, covering China is sort of like trying to take a photo of a race car and it's going really, really fast. And, you, and maybe not only taking a photo of a race car, but you have a really bad camera. You have like a point and shoot. And you're lucky if you can capture it in the frame. But when you capture it in the frame, it's fuzzy and out of focus, but it's there. But by the time you see it on your camera, it's about five miles away. And I think that that in many ways encompasses trying to cover China because this is the fastest moving country on the planet in the history of civilization right now. It's got the most people on the planet. And if you're not confused about China when you live there, everyone else is, you know, who's living there. And so I think one of, the, uh, one of the challenges and one of the things I've learned, I guess, in the last two years of covering China is that it's okay not to understand everything. Um, you're, you're never going to understand everything. Um, the best that you can do is to try and tell an honest and accurate story about the people that you meet. And I think radio is a great medium for that. It's a very intimate medium. Um, and it's a great medium to tell the stories of real people and, and that's what I'm trying to do, I guess, with my work, um, because the, the macro stuff, um, it, it's, almost, it's almost to a level where you can never really attain any kind of knowledge about this because it's so difficult to get it. Um, I think there are reporters who do a really good job at it. Um, but I think what I'm trying to focus on is just telling personal stories of people who are caught up in this race car of development and they themselves aren't really sure what's going on around them, but they're trying to make sense of it. And I think that that's, that's the journey and that's the story that I want to tell because I'm, I'm also having a hard time making sense of it. And it's okay uh, because that's part of the fun about reporting on China. And it's also, you know, I don't think anyone really fully understands China. It's, it's, it's a difficult place to get. When you poked holes in Mike Daisy's story and the piece came out, the retraction, famous retraction episode of This American Life came out, um, you had garnered a lot of attention. And just last week, Marketplace aired, aired the Apple Economy, a series that you did fall in, as a follow-up mm -hmm. to that. Why did you and Marketplace decide to devote that much <clears throat> airtime to factories making Apple products. I mean, mo so many of our products are made in China. Why, why focus so specifically on Foxconn? This was something that I wanted to do uh, almost before the This American Life segment was, was aired. 
because I felt like um, as I was reporting this uh, for This American Life and we were talking to Daisy, it became quickly apparent to me that the fallout of this and the media coverage of this um, would focus on Daisy himself. And that bothered me because this isn't a story about Mike Daisy. This is a story about factory workers and factory conditions in China. And I felt already, even before it aired, that you know this is going to get lost. That this is it's all going to be about him and it's not going to be about them. When I really wanted to, to tell stories about them. And so the the day after, so it aired on a Friday, on Monday I was already talking to my my editor about a series about about a series about workers and uh, I was I was pushing hard for it and and uh, in in that period while we were talking about it and I was convincing them that this would be a really good idea to do it uh, I got a call from Foxconn and they um, Foxconn of course was the subject of, of Mike Daisy's monologue Foxconn is the largest private employer in China, Foxconn makes 40% of the world's electronics. Uh, it's very difficult to get into a Foxconn factory. Uh, it's rare. Uh, journalists have done it, but it's it's a rare thing, and they don't usually allow it. Um, many journalists have snuck into a Foxconn factory, but they, they've uh, you know they've they've not uh, been able to get access uh, uh, officially approved. So. Um, I was invited to tour the Longhua facility of Foxconn in the city of Shenzhen, which is Foxconn's largest factory. It has 240,000 workers at it. Um, and then this is a very secure factory. There's no guards with guns, but there are guards and it's difficult to get in. And this was also a factory that was made notorious in 2010 for all the suicides that were happening there. And this is the factory where they erected the nets uh, around it. Uh, Foxconn, bought so many nets at one point that they wiped out the entire netting supply in Asia for two weeks. They constructed, they erected, they, they bought 500 football fields worth of nets. It's unbelievable magnitude. It's, it's incredible. And that's one of the first things that hits you when you go inside this facility are the nets. You look up and they're everywhere. And it just reminds you of, of this period, uh, this dark period in, in their history, of course. And, and you know, they, they, they got a lot of attention. Um, but so they invited me to, to see that facility. And two days later, <clears throat> and we, we had settled on a date. We said, okay, let's, let's do this next week. Let's do this next Monday. I wanted to go as soon as I, I could. And then I, I called my editor. I said, Foxconn invited me to go to the factory. Let's do it. And they agreed. Let's do, let's do a two-part series. One on the workers and one on the bosses. This is what the bosses want you to see. And this is what the workers are saying about it. Um, so we had it all set, bought my ticket, ready to go next Monday. And, uh, and then Apple called me. And uh, Apple called me and offered, to, offered me to tour the, the uh, iPad assembly line. I didn't really feel like I needed to tour that. Uh, because it, I don't think it was for me, it was wanting, I wanted to get inside of Foxconn, but I, it, it, I, I did some research on it. I realized that hardly anybody had done this. Only one journalist had ever done this before. And it was Bill Weir. And he had just done it uh, a couple months ago. Bill Weir is a reporter for uh, nightline. And, 
I thought, well, maybe we should, but Apple, it was, there was one caveat. Apple wanted to do, wanted to move the tour to the following Monday. So they wanted to delay it. And the reason they wanted to delay it was so that the Fair Labor Association audit report would come out before I actually toured the facility. So there, there was a lot of PR value in this, uh, in their, I think, in their opinion. Did and you... I, I knew that. <clears throat> I, I knew that the audit was coming out. And I asked them, why are you doing this? And, and there was some insinuation that this was coming out. I said, okay, so you're trying to time this to this. I said, okay, okay. Um, and privately, I was thinking, well, this might not be a bad idea because I could then keep my ticket to Shenzhen that I was originally planning to go, right? And then just spend a week with workers and no one will know about it. And so that's what I did. I, I flew to Shenzhen. Um, I spent a week with workers, both outside the gates of Foxconn. And then I, I followed one worker's money back to his village uh, 12 hours away by sleeper bus. And, um, and that ended up uh, being the material that I used in the, in the workers piece. And it ended up really well because um, it gave me a little more time to just spend with a lot of workers and to talk to them and get their ideas about, about what the conditions were actually like, uh, what their concerns were and what their worries were and, and what they liked about it, what they didn't like about the place. And I felt like I had a pretty good handle on it after spending a couple of days, two days straight, just, just talking to as many workers as I could. You knew what questions you wanted to ask. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I was asking them, uh, you know, a lot of numbers questions, but also, you know, th th there was at the time there was a, you know, I, I usually opened the questioning up with, did you get a raise? Because that was on a lot of workers' mind at the time because Foxconn told them that they were going to get a raise and many of them didn't and people were really angry. And willing to talk about that subject. Oh, yes. Yes. It was a great, like I said, money is a great vehicle to get people to, to talk about other things. Uh, I spent that week with workers and then the week following I spent two days at the, at the Foxconn <clears throat> plant inside the gates uh, from the other side um, with a tour from, from Apple. Uh, they sent someone from Cupertino. Uh, to be with me. Um, that person was off the record the entire time. Apple, of course, was not going to be on the record for this, uh, nor usually are they uh, for a story like this. But Foxconn was. Foxconn made available their special assistant to their CEO, Terry Go. His name is Louis Wu. And Louis um, gave me the tour of the facility, answered all my questions. And, um, and that was that. Did the boss's story or the, you know, my guided tour story line up with what you found out outside the factory gates? Some things did and some things didn't. Um, there were a lot of discrepancies. <clears throat> you know, I was, I was getting a tour from Foxconn. So they were going to show me the soccer field. They were going to show me the basketball courts and the pools and all of the amenities, the things that workers could do, the things that they were offering the workers. So, of course, I was getting a guided tour and I was seeing what they wanted me to see. I was given some leeway in what I wanted to see. I was able to ask, hey, can I see this part? And they would let me and it wasn't on the itinerary. Um, they never said no uh, when I asked to, to veer from the itinerary. Um, but some of the issues with the salaries didn't check out at all. And I kept badgering Lewis about this. And he actually was pretty good about it. He, he After our interview, he looked into it himself and he realized that he was wrong. Um, I, I met one pregnant woman who, uh, who I interviewed uh, late in the day after she was coming off her shift. She was upset and she talked about how uh, her supervisor uh, wasn't allowing 
her to, to, to go to a different part of the assembly line. She worked on the iPad assembly line. She worked in a clean room and she used uh, uh, an alcohol pad or with alcohol and also a chemical solution to clean the components that came into the, into the factory. And she did this in a confined space and there were really strong fumes, she said, and that it was making her sick and she was worried about the baby. Um, so she approached her supervisor uh, about this, she said, and that the supervisor said, uh, we're not going to switch you. And, uh, if you do try to put in the paperwork, it'll take seven months. And, um, and now we're going to put you on the night shift. So, uh, she was, you know, she's telling me this, she's crying. And, um, she was, the reason she was crying so hard was that she revealed later that her, one of her immediate supervisors had asked the same thing and she had gotten her way. She had gotten to go to another part of the assembly line. And uh, for her, that wasn't, obviously it's not fair. It's terrible. Um, I told Louis Wu about this and uh, Louis seemed genuinely concerned about this and he wanted to help. Um, but I, and you know, he offered you know, his cell phone number, his, his email address and everything. And I, and, uh, I, I called the woman and the woman was, was too scared to, to give that, to, 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 to call him or to email him. So I think that there is real fear. You know, she wasn't the only one who I spoke to who were really scared, uh, about their supervisors and that relationship, uh, uh, supervisors who were making them work hours. They didn't want to work or making them work when they were sick. And I met a few workers who said that, um, so you know, this supervisor worker relationship I felt was one of the biggest complaints. Now that's not an explosion and that's not people shaking uncontrollably with hexane and these aren't kids. Okay. But these, this is the reality, I think. And, and this is something that Americans can relate to. This is something we all can relate right. to. Everybody has a problem with a supervisor at one point or another. Not at Marketplace, of course. No, no, I, I do not have any problems with my supervisors. <laughs> of course not. No, and, and, and I, I love my editors. I really do. Uh, you know, I think most Americans can relate to the complaints of, I don't get along with my supervisor, I'm bored, and the work is tedious. But that, that's what I was hearing. Those were the main complaints. When you walked into Foxconn and you saw all these nets over the mm -hmm. buildings, did that square with your impressions from workers outside the gates? Did you feel like people there were had so much despair from their work that they wanted to commit suicide? No, that wasn't my impression. Um, my impression of those nets after seeing... I don't think it, I fully grasped how young these workers were. They're not 12 and they're not 13, but most of the workers at Foxconn are between the ages of 17 or 18 and about 25. That's about as old as they get. And if you think about this group of workers in China, um, 18 to 25 year olds, many of them, almost all of them are high school dropouts. Many of them are from the countryside. Some of them are children of other migrants. This is a tough sociodemographic group in China. Um, tough in the sense that they don't feel like they belong to any group. They, they feel marginalized. Um, they're going through um, their first romances, I think, which is a very important thing to remember. And, and we should also remind people that romance in China doesn't really happen until 
you're about 17 or 18 because it's it's so taboo in many ways that that until you're that age you're finally allowed to sort of date and and to to, to see to see folks so i think when you look at all of those things and put them together that to me is more rational uh explanation for the suicides than oh i hate my work i think that probably contributes to it you know suicide's a complicated thing there's a lot of things that contribute to it but i don't think it was solely the work but again, I will say that the work that I saw inside that assembly line, you go in there. And the thing that I was shocked at was just how not automated this line was. I've been to a lot of factories and you usually see, you see a fair degree of automation. You see machines, workers here and there. A lot of workers are actually operating the machines. You don't usually see workers at every step of the evolution of the product that you're looking at. But in this case, in the case of the iPad, uh, if you own an iPad, you know, take a look at it. Almost every step of that iPad, almost every screw that puts that thing together is screwed in by a worker at one stage or another. And so that's kind of what struck me the most. And it sounds so simple and kind of dumb, but the thing is there are people all over the place doing every single little step in the evolution of this iconic object that we all know. Do you own one? No. Do you have an iPhone? Yes. Do you look at it differently now? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, you know, I, that, that, that was one thing that, that I didn't really fully comprehend. And, and yeah, now when I look at my iPhone, I do think about that. I think about, wow, you know, this, this one thing was, you know, it's so small and, you know, you, you know, each worker is doing, Emotion that takes about sometimes it ranges from you know five six seconds. Can you imagine? You can imagine that doing that ten hours a day, dun, 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 dun. and as you're doing it, everything that they do, so they they'll do the motion, and then and many of the stations they need to scan the machine to make sure that everything's okay with the iPad at that point in time, and then when they scan it, what you hear from a computer monitor from the speaker is a female automatic voice and the voice says okay 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 and you hear this over and over and over everywhere it's a chorus of okays and it's all over and it and that's all you're hearing inside of this factory it's deafening and it's hypnotic that's kind of creepy it's creepy and so when i say that i hesitate a little about you know the answer about the suicides I can sort of see that if you're depressed about something in your life and you go to work and that's all you're hearing for 10 hours a day and you're doing this movement over and over, that certainly isn't going to help your situation. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Marketplace's Shanghai Bureau Chief Rob Schmitz interviewed by Anjali Shah. The first of two parts. In part two, Schmitz talks more about factory work and about the pitfalls journalists and other writers face when talking about China. You should run with me. One of us has to.